Before we start this week's show, we have an exciting announcement. This week's episode is the first in a trilogy on the history of the Philosopher's Stone. It's the first time we've tried a multi-part miniseries, but once we started researching, we realized that there is just too much good stuff for a single episode. So we hope you enjoy this first installment in our three-part series on alchemy and the Philosopher's Stone. The art of alchemy, of transmuting one substance into another, has captured our imaginations for centuries. In William Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, the Roman Senator Casca refers to the conspirator Brutus's virtue and charm as a kind of alchemy. Come, Casca, you and I will yet ere day see Brutus as his house. Three parts of him is ours already, and the man entire, upon the next encounter, yields him ours. Oh, he sits high in all the people's hearts, and that which would appear offense in us, his countenance, like richest alchemy, will change to virtue and to worthiness. It's fitting that one of Shakespeare's most explicit references to alchemy happens in a play set in ancient Rome. Since it's the Roman Empire that oversaw the greatest flourishing of alchemy in the ancient West. Several centuries before Julius Caesar's reign, the conquests of Alexander the Great united Macedonia, Greece, Egypt, Syria, Persia, and all points in between into a single empire. But it was its heirs, the Hellenistic kingdoms, that consolidated these diverse nations into a multicultural polity. Alexander's capital on the Mediterranean coast of Egypt, which he modestly named Alexandria, became the true center of the Mediterranean world. Over the next few centuries, the Roman Empire would conquer the majority of the Hellenistic kingdoms and begin to expand and contract, experiencing a series of disruptions. In the midst of political chaos, the intellectual melting pot of Alexandria will yield one of the ancient world's most innovative alchemists and give rise to the legend of an impossible treasure the Philosopher's Stone. By the end of the Severan dynasty in 235 CE, the Roman Empire was already beginning an era of unprecedented economic and political crisis. The growing power of the Roman army and the Praetorian Guard in choosing, and sometimes replacing, emperors created an environment in which any instability in the line of imperial succession allowed military commanders to step in and claim the empire for themselves. The collapse of the Severan dynasty ushered in the era of the barracks emperors and a series of frequent civil wars, as each challenger assassinated or overthrew the current emperor only to take the throne himself until he, too, was assassinated or overthrown. In the half-century during which the barracks emperors reigned, the frequent turnover of the imperial office meant that emperors reigned for an average of just two years. Some years would see multiple emperors come and go. For example, in 238, there were no fewer than five emperors of Rome, one of whom was murdered by his own troops, and two by their own bodyguards. The fact that earlier emperors had rendered the Roman Senate all but useless and centralized all power on the imperial office 
meant that there was no institution to provide leadership and stability in the midst of imperial infighting. As if these political upheavals weren't enough, the empire was also experiencing multiple external threats and natural disasters. In the middle of the third century, plague ravaged both urban and rural areas. The decline in farming and food production contributed to agricultural instability and subsequent famines. Taking advantage of the empire's political and military weakness and experiencing the effects of plague and famine themselves, Germanic tribes began to attack cities along the Danube River, and Persian imperial armies began to attack the Roman Empire's eastern provinces. But the greatest threat to the empire was the threat to its economy. Years of hyperinflation and devaluation of currency led to a near-total collapse in Roman coinage. And the interior trade networks that had existed since the beginning of the empire under Caesar Augustus finally broke down. In the urban centers of the Roman Empire, particularly the cosmopolitan city of Alexandria in Egypt, new philosophical and religious traditions offered hope to citizens of an empire in chaos. By the end of the 3rd century, an intellectually curious citizen of Alexandria had a variety of philosophies, schools of thought, and religious practices to choose from. Among these, Neoplatonism and Gnosticism had gained ground and earned dedicated followings. The Neoplatonists, so-called because their ideas were based on the writings of the classical Greek philosopher Plato, saw the material world as a sad shadow of its perfect and ideal form, which existed only in spirit. Members of this school of thought sought to detach themselves from the material world in favor of embracing spiritual or cosmic matters. A prominent 3rd-century Egyptian Neoplatonist called Plotinus posited that the universe was governed by a single supreme principle, which existed outside of matter and time, which he called simply the One. Many late-antique Jewish, Christian, and Gnostic thinkers would base their cosmology on Plotinus's concept of the One, a consciousness that exists beyond all space and time. Building on this idea, the tradition of Gnosticism, from the Greek term for having knowledge, applied religious ideology to Neoplatonism. Rather than rely on the authority of Scripture, as Judaism and Christianity did, Gnosticism emphasized the accumulation of personal spiritual understanding. Borrowing from Persian Zoroastrianism, many Gnostics viewed the material world as the corrupt creation of an evil lesser god while true spiritual wisdom came from the One, the great creator of all that is eternal. The enlightenment of the soul through divine revelation allowed the soul's redemption from illusion, deception, ignorance, and death. While most viewed these religious and philosophical principles as entirely spiritual or intellectual, some contemporaries attempted to find more practical applications. Alchemy is typically defined as the practice of transmuting base metals into silver or gold, and in such practices lie the roots of modern chemistry. 
Though variations of alchemy existed in China and India, the Western form probably developed in the rich cultural and intellectual soil of the Greco-Egyptian corners of the Roman Empire. Amid all the other philosophical and religious traditions, alchemy was informed in part by Hermeticism, a religious tradition based on the writings of Hermes Trismegistus, Hermes the Thrice Great, a legendary figure born of the blending of Greek and Egyptian archetypes. Hermetic texts describe how to utilize astronomy, geometry, medicine, hieroglyphs, music, and other disciplines in order to gain knowledge of the One God and one's own divine essence. And these texts have informed everything from ancient alchemy to the modern ritual magical practices of the Rosicrucians, the Order of the Golden Dawn, and Aleister Crowley. Despite popular modern understandings of alchemy, for ancient alchemists the generation of gold had less to do with producing gold artificially and more to do with refining the baseness of substances into a more elevated form. Their point in coloring or dyeing metal was not to create real or counterfeit gold, but to prove that the grossness of the metal had been purged, revealing its new, unchangeable, incorruptible, divine nature. An early alchemical text called The Dialogue of the Philosophers and Cleopatra describes this process in religious terms. In this text, Cleopatra describes the regeneration of matter through alchemy in language that would be familiar to any early reader of the Gospels. And the soul calls the body that has been filled with light, wake up from Hades, arise from the tomb and come out of darkness. You have been clothed with spirituality and divinity since the voice of resurrection has sounded and the medicine of life has entered into you. When one of these resurrected metals does arise, it's because it has put on the light of divinity and darkness has fled from it. It has been clothed with divine spiritual glory. It was perhaps only a matter of time then before an alchemist decided to combine this mystical view of the transmutation of metals with hermetic and Gnostic ideas about refining human consciousness. Enter Zosimos of Panopolis. Most of what we know about Zosimos comes from fragments of text attributed to him and preserved in later collections. But what seems most likely is that he was born in Greek-speaking Panopolis in Roman Imperial Egypt, studied in Alexandria, and flourished around the year 300. Influenced by the rich variety of philosophical, religious, and mystical traditions circulating in Alexandria, Zosimos incorporated these ideas into the material aspects of alchemy. When alchemists like Zosimos began to apply alchemical principles to the human spirit, the language of alchemy became the language of enlightenment, of salvation, and of resurrection. Just as base metals had to die in order for the spirit of gold to be transferred into them so that they could be reborn, resurrected even, into their purest forms, resurrection of the human spirit also became possible. Small wonder, then, that the alchemists describe the process of transformation in terms of salvation, resurrection, immortality, and divinity. The act of immersing metals in liquid in order to change their color and reveal their new purified form took on the language of baptism, 
of regeneration by fire, water, and spirit. Zosimos made this link explicit in his writings by combining Egyptian and Jewish traditions. There are two sciences and two wisdoms, that of the Egyptians and that of the Hebrews, which latter is confirmed by divine justice. The science and wisdom of the most excellent dominate the one and the other. Both originate in olden times. Their origin is without a king, autonomous and immaterial. It is not concerned with material and corruptible bodies. It operates without submitting to strange influences, supported by prayer and divine grace. As the sun is, so to speak, a flower of the fire, and simultaneously the heavenly sun, the right eye of the world, so copper when it blooms, that is, when it takes the color of gold through purification, becomes a terrestrial sun, which is king of the earth, as the sun is king of heaven. In transformation of base metals into more noble substances, Zosimos found new inspiration, believing that the human spirit could likewise be distilled and purified. With Zosimos, Alchemy transformed from the solely material into a mystical form of mental and spiritual purification. He believed that divine revelation, meditation, and piety were crucial to the work of alchemy. While he appears to have relied on astrology and ideas about cosmic sympathy, he ultimately rejected the concept of magic, since he associated it with the invocation of angels and demons. His rejection of the idea that humans could control spiritual beings reflected Neoplatonist, Gnostic, and Hermetic concepts of the One. Cosmic forces obeyed the will of the One, not the will of mere humans. He believed deeply in the supremacy of nature and of fate, and predicted only failure and sorrow for those who tried to work against natural principles. In one passage from On the Letter Edda, Zosimos has a dialogue with his female student, Theosbea, and tells a striking story. It is stated in the holy scriptures or books, dear lady, that there exists a race of daemons who have commerce with women. Hermes made mention of them in his Physica. In fact, almost the entire work, openly and secretly, alludes to them. It is related in the ancient and divine scriptures that certain angels lusted for women, and descending from the heavens they taught them all the arts of nature. On account of this, says the scripture, they offended God, and now live outside heaven, because they taught to men all the evil arts which are of no advantage to the soul. For Zosimos, a true alchemist, like a true philosopher, is free from the wheel of fortune. To drive home this point, he drew from both the Hermetic mystical tradition and Persian Zoroastrianism in On the Letter Omega. Hermes and Zoroaster maintained that the race of philosophers is superior to fate, because they neither rejoice in her blessings, for they are masters of pleasure, nor are they thrown by her evils, since they live an inner existence. Nor again do they welcome the beautiful gifts she sends, since they focus on the end of evils. Zosimos saw alchemy not as the refining of base metals into gold, but the freeing of the divine spirit from the earthly body it had come to inhabit. He theorized that the right substance, one that easily transformed base metals into their purest forms, had greater applications than the creation of wealth. 
It could elevate the human body and spirit beyond ignorance, beyond sickness, beyond old age, even beyond the reach of death itself. This substance was the philosopher's stone. Over the centuries, alchemical authors have offered a variety of descriptions of the philosopher's stone. But the general consensus is that it's a substance that transforms base metals into either silver or gold, and is either white, for making silver, or red, for making gold. A small portion mixed in wine can protect the one who consumes it from sickness and the effects of aging. Some ancient texts describe it in geometric and symbolic terms combining the four material elements into a single sigil, a small circle inside a square, inside a triangle, inside a larger circle. Efforts to discover and create the Philosopher's Stone are known as the magnum opus, the great work. Over time, the stone came to symbolize the central mystical tenets of alchemy, the ultimate perfection of both matter and spirit. Zosimos, saw the stone as a way for humanity to transcend the concerns, the politics, and the crises of his era. The crises of the third century finally slowed with the ascension of Emperor Diocletian. Beginning in 284, Diocletian introduced a series of reforms designed to stabilize the empire's political and economic downward spiral. Among these was the prohibition of alchemy. The emperor was deeply conservative when it came to religion, believing that the universal embrace of traditional Roman polytheism was the key to establishing a unified Roman state. He suspected that Gnosticism, the related tradition of Manichaeanism, and Christianity were contributing to the empire's many crises and undermining his rule. When citizens of Alexandria staged an uprising in 292, Diocletian's worst fears were confirmed. The city that represented intellectual, philosophical, and religious diversity had become the epicenter of rebellion. He outlawed the study of astrology and alchemy in Egypt and ordered that all related texts be collected and burned and threatened Manichaean leaders with death. Of course, that's not the persecution Diocletian is remembered for. Starting in 303, Diocletian issued a series of imperial edicts stripping Christians of their legal rights. Over the next decade, Diocletian would attempt to purge all traces of Christianity from the Roman Empire. His efforts would ultimately fail. Following Diocletian's prohibition of alchemy, translations and commentaries on these texts went underground. There's evidence for their preservation and transmission in Syria under the Nestorian Christian community, and a few centuries later in Persia. Alchemy would have to wait for its revival in the Islamic world after its rapid expansion in the 8th century, and for interactions between Muslim and Christian scholars in Mediterranean Europe to make a resurgence in the 11th and 12th centuries. Taking Zosimo's text as their foundation, medieval alchemists in the Byzantine Empire and Islamic caliphates 
attempted to put these ideas into practice. Following an era of renewed cultural exchange across the Mediterranean in the 11th and 12th centuries, Muslim and European alchemists began to debate whether the transmutation of substances was possible in a practical, material sense. That is, whether metal could not just be refined, but could, in fact, be transformed into gold. The Persian scientist Ibn Sina refuted this concept, saying no change can be affected in the different species of substances, instead arguing that if it appears that a substance has in fact changed, it's merely an illusion. Medieval European alchemists were encouraged, however, by the story that the scientist and philosopher Albertus Magnus had in fact discovered the Philosopher's Stone. In his own writings, Magnus testified that he himself witnessed the transmutation of base metals into gold, affirming the power of the Philosopher's Stone. The history of alchemy is the story of cultural exchange, preservation of knowledge, and the war between deception and true understanding. In his integration of Greek, Persian, Roman, Egyptian, Jewish, Neoplatonic, Gnostic, and Hermetic themes, Zosimos was very much a product of his time and place. For him, alchemy represented the place where the boundaries between cultures, philosophies, and religions ceased to matter, and all traditions melted into one for the sake of the great work. If Zosimos' career was an attempt to understand, perhaps even to repair the chaos that surrounded him, the Philosopher's Stone was a beacon of hope. If it could purify even the basest metals, such a miraculous substance might purge humanity of its worst aspects. The stone offers freedom from poverty, from illness, and even from death. In times of great need, the Philosopher's Stone offers something to strive for, and the desire to discover the stone will arise again and again, promising a release from the ills of mortal existence. In 2017, the American classicist and poet Aaron Pushigian published his poem, Zosimos, the last stanza celebrates the lasting effect Zosimos of Panopolis had on those who came after. We love you, Master. Great or not, your sacrifice has rendered us apostles in the melting pot. Panopolis of Zosimos. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to join us next time as we continue the story of the Philosopher's Stone and the role it played in medieval England. Can alchemy save a kingdom and a king on the brink of madness? You can subscribe to Enchanted wherever you listen and help spread the word by rating and reviewing Enchanted on Apple Podcasts. This week's episode was produced by Thomas Ignatius and Corinne Wieben with original music by Purple Planet. You can find them at purple-planet.com. You can get in touch with us via email at enchantedpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Enchanted Podcast and on Twitter at Enchanted Pod. 
To learn more about the show or to become a supporter and help keep the magic going, please visit EnchantedPodcast.net. I'm Corinne Wieben. Thank you for listening and stay enchanted. Enchanted.